Today our scripture comes from the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Milon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. When they had lived there about ten years, both Milon and Chilion also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you might find security, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them and they wept aloud. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. It has been far more bitter for me than for you because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. Then they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where I go, you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as well, if even death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. May the Lord bless the reading of this living word, and may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the days that I spent in a faraway foreign land called Texas, I was a pastor of outreach. And I spent many, many hours with people who would never walk through the doors of our sanctuary. People who would never go to any church at all. 
People who didn't believe in the virgin birth. People who thought Jesus was an interesting teacher, but certainly not the Son of God. People who were interested in self-help, but were skeptical about resurrection. There were other people who actually professed Jesus as their Lord and their Savior, but thought the church was just a waste of time. Lots of pious words, but no action. They saw church people like Jesus saw those Pharisees that tithed their mint and their cumin, but neglected the weightier matters of justice and mercy and faith. There were other people who loved Jesus and longed for spiritual growth in a community of other people, but who were so traumatized by the ways they were ignored and mistreated and belittled by church people that they could never trust the church again. And I couldn't blame them. There were people in my congregation who didn't see all this time and all this money spent on people who would never come to church and become members and give money as a very good return on investment. The church was paying for the outreach committee to set up booths at street festivals and run community concerts and give coffee to our neighbors in the apartments across the street and give out hot chocolate to children at Santa in the park. But what do we have to show for all that? What I told them over and over again is that perhaps because we showed up where our neighbors already were and shared life with them, that when their world was turned upside down by pain or by joy that was too big to be held in the containers that they had had for their lives, that they would know us and they would trust us and they would sense that we were the kind of church that would cling to them even when they didn't have anything else to hold on to. My friends, this is the distinctive gift that the church has to offer to the world. Yes, we have beautiful music and we have great programs that help children grow into teenagers and teenagers grow into adults. We have good Bible studies that help us find ancient wisdom for unforeseen modern problems. And yes, we have a great theology, good words about the God who spoke the world into being, creating humans in His image and His likeness to be good. Words about the way that God had loved these humans and His creation so much that He held on to them. Words about how He kept on stubbornly loving all the way through the centuries until His broken heart put on flesh and lived among us and died and was resurrected to bring us new life. But even these good words about God, this good theology is not enough. It is not enough unless those divine words become flesh in our real lives. Unless we become like the God who stubbornly refuses to let go of us unless we become like Ruth. God's Word became flesh in Ruth's life. And that word was the Hebrew word chesed. 
Hesed, usually translated as steadfast love, is a combination of love and generosity and enduring commitment that is unconditional, that is not based on the worthiness of the person receiving it. It is the most common way that the Hebrew Bible describes God. In Exodus 34.6, the Lord is described as compassionate and gracious, overflowing with chesed, which is loyal love and faithfulness. In Psalm 36, where our call to worship came from, the psalmist says the Lord's steadfast love, chesed, endures forever. And he says it 26 different times, which is where I must be getting close to that already in this sermon. As our story opens, Naomi sees God's chesed in both of her daughters-in-law. And in verse 8, prays that the Lord will return that same kind of loving kindness to them that they have shown her and they have shown her family. Naomi came to, a to their land as a stranger as she and her husband and her sons moved from Bethlehem to Moab to find food. There were historic tensions between Moabites and Israelites, but we don't see any of that in this story. Orpah and Ruth were not only faithful wives to Naomi's boys, but what I read in between the lines is that they were faithful to take care of Naomi long after her husband passed. And now remarkably, they are on the road with her, leaving the land where they had spent their entire lives, moving far from their families, to seek food and help, this time in Naomi's homeland. And as they walk along, suddenly Naomi stops in her tracks. She has an epiphany. She doesn't want these women to suffer the same fate that she did. She wants a future for them with new husbands and new families, and she does the most loving thing she can think of. She gives them permission to go home, even if that means that's going to leave her more vulnerable and alone as she goes on her way. And that is chesed. But remarkably, Orpah and Ruth respond with more chesed. They say no. They refuse to leave. They stay right there clinging to Naomi. Naomi insists a second time that they go home. And Orpah says goodbye and weeps and goes home. But Ruth still clings to Naomi. Naomi tells Ruth to go home a third time, but she shouts, do not press me to leave you or turn back from following you. Do you hear the emotion catching in her throat? Do you hear the fierceness, maybe even the anger? Have you ever been giving everything you have to somebody you love and they say, no, 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 I'm fine. I don't need you. That is what Ruth is feeling. And sometimes when that happens, you just have to get in their face and say, I am loving you anyway. She goes on to say, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. The Hebrew has no verbs in that last sentence. It just says, my, your people, my people. Your God, my God. And that is fitting because it tersely communicates 
the unbreakable connection that Ruth already has with Naomi and already has with the God of Israel. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me and more as well, if even death parts me from you. After this dramatic speech, the narrator tells us that when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Was Naomi so overwhelmed with gratitude that Ruth stayed with her that she was speechless? Or did Naomi just give up realizing that Ruth was too stubborn and it was pointless to resist? Or was Naomi mad that Ruth wouldn't leave her alone? Did she resent Ruth because every time she saw her, she would see all that she had lost in Moab? We don't know. But we do know that Ruth's chesed, Ruth's stubborn love, hangs on. Unlike most of the other stories in the Hebrew Bible, God is not an obvious actor in Ruth. The narrator does not tell us that God speaks directly with Naomi or Ruth or Boaz or anybody else. God does not act in these dramatic, visible ways to intervene in the events of the story. The only time we hear about God is in the words of the characters speaking to each other as they try to make sense of what is happening in their lives. Yes, the hand of God who brings the rain and causes the plants to grow is seen by Naomi in the news that Bethlehem has a harvest while Moab is still suffering in famine. But if Naomi can move her gaze down from the heavens and down from the horizon beyond which her homeland awaits, she will see the stubborn love of God putting on flesh in her daughter-in-law Ruth. And she will feel the stubborn love of God in the arms of Ruth that cling to her. I give thanks for the story of Ruth because it helps me believe that God's stubborn love can actually be found in this world. That God's love is not just a lofty theological idea. That it's not just something that we can feel in our spirit, but a love with flesh and blood and skin and bones that reaches out to cling to us. Love as close as a spouse on the other side of the bed, or as close as the child who sits in our laps, or the person who sits by the bedside that holds our hand, or the person who shook your hand or gave you a hug, just a few minutes ago when you walked in this door. Because though it may be hard to understand God with our mind or see God in the events of our lives, God comes to us in the good but imperfect people all around us. Because God so stubbornly loved the world that His chesed put on flesh in a boy named Jesus who was born the Son of God in Ruth's family tree 27 branches down. And by the power of the crucified and resurrected Christ who is born again in us, God's stubborn love puts on flesh in our lives and empowers us to be God's stubborn love for each other. My friends, that is why church exists it is only in the relationships of Jesus' families like this one where we share life with real people 
that we can learn how much God really loves us. Church exists so that people like Alan and John can meet. Alan and his wife Fran moved to join Broadway Baptist Church in Fort Worth, Texas more than 20 years ago. A few years after that, Fran became the youth pastor. But a few years after that, Alan stopped going to church altogether. A few years later, Alan was at his favorite bar where he met a young man named John. They started talking and they and realized that on the surface they could not be any more different from one another. Alan was a middle-aged white man who was politically conservative and a libertarian, and John was a young black man who was a liberal. They began to have spirited and often heated conversations around the pool table. But because of this and through this, they actually became good friends. In the beginning, it was Alan who really sought to mentor John. It was Alan who loved John by getting in his face after he got a DUI and saying, you really need to get sober and get your life together. A few years later, Alan got devastating news of late stage brain cancer. In that last year, as he underwent treatment that couldn't stop his brain or his body from deteriorating, the church stopped being a building that Alan didn't go to anymore and started being the arms that reached out to cling to him and to Fran. And he started coming back into the building too. Alan had a wonderfully dark sense of humor, and so he threw himself a pre-funeral party at another bar where friends told stories and jokes and he sat on the stage and he played guitar and he said what he most wanted to say to the people he most loved. Now there were some Baptists that came that night to that bar who never thought they'd be in a bar. And there were a lot of Allen's friends who never thought they'd step foot in a Baptist church. And some of them actually did, but that's a part of the story for later. In his parting words that night, Alan said, going through cancer has shown me that I need a community. My friends, if you don't have a church, if you don't have persons who can be there for you and love you, you need to find those people. And if you want to join me, I'll be sitting on the back row at Broadway next Sunday. John was in that crowd Saturday night. And he was there at church Sunday too. John and I met for coffee that next week and he was so skeptical that this fancy church with this big steeple could love, much less accept someone like him. But soon he was sitting in the pew every Sunday and showing up at our house for Monday night dinner. Soon he was baptized by Fran. Soon he was going to Sunday school and sitting, singing in the choir and he even gave his testimony in church and there was not a dry eye in the house. That church loved John so well as he processed the pain of growing up with his father in prison and the struggle of trying to be in relationship with him as an adult. They loved him through his one step forward, two steps back fight with addiction 
They loved him through the stress and the exhaustion of going back to school to finish his degree and to get his MBA, all while working a full-time job. Jenny and I love John as our music festival friend and our fellow Christmas orphan because we always spent Christmas night together because we didn't have family in town to celebrate with either. But the truth is that John loved us back just as much and often more. He held on to us tight, not just in his hard hugs, but with his calls and his texts, even when we moved a thousand miles away. Two weeks ago, I went to John's funeral. And as I tried and failed to sing Amazing Grace through my tears, I reflected on that stubborn love that saved Alan's life. And that stubborn love that saved John's life as the people of God clung to them. But more than that, I was overcome by the way that God's stubborn love had embraced me through John. And the ways that God's stubborn love through John's life was continuing to save me. But y'all already know that story. And I'm not talking about Alan's story or John's story or my story, but the story that has happened again and again in this church family, in your lives, in the lives of your loved ones. When your world was turned upside down by pain or joy that was too big to be held by the containers that you had for your lives. That story about that time that those people from your Sunday school class or the youth group came and sat with you on the couch or sat in the hospital room or stood at the graveside and clung to you. That time that the followers of Jesus held you when you had nothing else to hold on to you. That time that you felt the embrace of God in someone who loved you and was there. I believe that for some of you, that story is unfolding right now. Even in this moment. Even if you can't see it. Because God's chesed, God's stubborn love is all around you. Just look around this room. It comes to us in flesh and blood and skin and bones. It comes to us in people like Ruth and Jesus and John and you and me. God's stubborn love will never let you go. And if we can keep holding on tightly to each other, we might just feel it. And it might just save us all. May that be so for this church family and for a world so desperate to feel the embrace of Jesus. Amen.